Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Erica, Doug, Tiffany, and Gabby. And today our topic is going to be cholesterol. Uh, what's good about cholesterol? What are some uh, negative things? Uh, what are some of the myths uh, that have been propped up around cholesterol? And uh, especially some of the negative outcomes of trying to treat cholesterol levels, um, which has just gone completely wrong. Uh, throughout the history of medicine, resulting ultimately in uh, statin drugs, which we're also going to talk about today. Um, so we have some studies that we're going to refer to, uh, as well as talking about side effects of statins. Um, we're going to talk about the function of cholesterol. What does it actually do in the body? Uh, why do you need it? Um, and, you know, again, some of the lies that have been built up around that. But let's start off with a few things from uh, this week in the news, in some health news. and like uh, Gabby wanted to talk about an article related to uh, poor diet and how that that's actually worse um, than some of the other things that have been touted as being bad for your health. Gabby, do you want to go over that for a minute? Yeah. Yeah, so in the news this week, we have uh, the title of the article is Poor Diet Causes More Disease Than Lack of Exercise, Smoking, and Alcohol Combined, say doctors. So we have here that a food diet is the sole responsible agent, and this news item is based on an editorial published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, and the authors of the article are, you know, big advocates of the ketogenic diet. It's Dr. Asim Malhotra, Tim Noakes, and Stephen Finney. You know, they they basically, you know, have published a lot of articles on low-carb diets, in sports, but also for health. Uh, Dr. Malhotra wrote an editorial for the British Medical Journal saying that it's basically like, we got it all wrong. Let's not blame saturated fat anymore. It's just, it was all about carbs, basically. So it is good to see that the kids point out the obvious, you know, when it comes down to the health catastrophe, because we only need to look into what we eat. And um, they claim that restricting carbs is the single most useful intervention to decrease metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, cholesterol issues. And I thought that was pretty good because people nowadays, they're exercising like crazy, even falling dead, you know, while exercising. The number of people smoking are every time less and less and less, and yet people are very sick like never before. So just as long as diet is not addressed, there is simply no hope. At least these people managed to write this article, and it's being in the media right now. That was good. All right. Well, and we uh, we had a couple other articles on the list here. Um, looks like uh, gen- uh, genetically engineered food is starting to be exposed a little bit more. Erica, do you want to cover that for us? Yeah, so um, on April 22nd, an article came out uh, in National Geographic uh, online by Simon Worrell, and it's called Is Genetically Engineered Food a Fraud? And um, basically, it's a review of a new book that's been published called uh, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, 
how the venture to genetically engineer our food has subverted science, corrupted government, and systematically deceived the public. And this book was written by a public interest attorney named Steve Drucker, and he's actually the executive director at the Alliance for Biointegrity. And uh, the article we chose to share today because National Geographic is pretty well-read mainstream news source, and um, you know, basically they're putting it out there that what many readers of SOT have known for years is that this genetically engineered food is a fraud and all the science is skeptical at best. And basically he, I haven't read the book yet, but he goes on to say that um, genetically modified food is one of the biggest frauds in the history of science. And the corruption of government has also been very deep and multifaceted. And one thing that I didn't know, and I've been studying GMOs and genetically modified food for several years, even doing panel discussions for the public, for farmers, about the implications of, um, you know, these kind of mutant genes, mainly in the soil, but also in the food. He has an interesting little quote or, or informational tidbit in the article about how back during the administration of President Reagan in the 1980s, the biotechnology industry was going to be one of the main ways in which the U.S. economy would come out of the doldrums. And so a policy was adopted to promote the biotech industry without any new regulations. It was reported to be science-based, but scholars who studied it concluded it was not science-based at all. It was framed and motivated by economic and political considerations. And basically, the FDA broke that law and lied about the facts in order to get GMOs on the market. And, you know, um, in the U.S., 85% of the food consumed by Americans has genetically modified organisms in it. And so, um, basically, the, the risk had been recognized by the FDA and... Um, back in 90 and 92, and the overwhelming conclusion was that genetic engineering differs from conventional breeding to a great degree, that the foods it generates entail different risks, and that no one, that none can be presumed safe until they have demonstrated the safety by rigorous scientific testing. But as we know, these scientific tests haven't been done. Um, and the... Uh, interviewer asked the author of the book, you know, um, for proponents, GMO are a magic bullet to cure world hunger. For opponents, these are frankenfoods that will poison us. Is there any middle ground? And the author's pretty good about saying, I don't use the term frankenfood because I'd rather not throw names around. But there, it's too many of the proponents of GMOs are not speaking as scientists, but skin doctors. So they're basically... Mm -hmm spinning the information, and we see this again and again in articles that are written. It's kind of like the vaccine issue, right? If you question the science behind GMOs, then you're crazy or a conspiracy theorist or whatnot. One thing in the article that was interesting was George Wald, a Nobel laureate and biology professor at Harvard, said genetic engineering is the biggest break in nature that has occurred in human history. 
<laughs> and basically it's breaking down of the natural species boundaries in a very radical intervention. And just a little bit on that, you know, when when they genetically modify seeds and uh, put genes into other genes and whatnot, they, um, they have to put in what's called a promoter gene to kind of recognize the uh, DNA in, in the product. I'm not even sure the terminology. But the concern is, and a lot of people have shared this, is that when you put promoter genes into GMOs, it can turn on and off different things in the body. And so, again, the concern is what kinds of things are being turned on and turned off in the body. And there's no safety studies to show this, you know, and we see all these incidences of sickness and illness since GMOs have been introduced in the market back in 92, 93. So he does ask why uh, Europe has been uh, protected against these kinds of things and um, why are Europeans so critical of GMOs? And um, he writes, European citizens made it clear that they didn't want these foods. They've almost always presented uh, the GMO side in the media here in America, and Americans have been systematically deceived. So um, he goes on to say that, you know, this economic benefit of why they would promote GMOs to make money, according to U.S. law, it's illegal to offset risks by benefits. So they're saying, oh, you know, you can grow all this food and make money and it will be great economically and whatnot, but it's basically the risk, you know, they just don't know. And it will be like our topic that we talk about today, you know, sometimes it takes 10, 20 years for these risks to start to show themselves. But if the studies aren't being done, people aren't educated about it. So, um, yeah, I don't know if anyone has anything to add. One little added note there is um, Jane Goodall wrote uh, the introduction to the book and gives the book an excellent review. Hmm. Basically, it seems to be kind of a culminating of all the information that's come out over the years really addressing this issue. It's a long time to have a dangerous drug on the market. I mean, there's millions of people who could die in those 20 years. There's uh, all kinds of autoimmune diseases and debilitating illnesses that can occur in those 20 years, not to mention all the billions of dollars that companies can make in those 20 years. So mm-hmm. I don't think there will be any safety studies done, and if they are, which they have been done, but they'll be covered up. Mm-hmm. What, what yeah. strikes me is that there are studies in animals, for example, from any other toxic chemical, and the animal will end up with liver disease. So mm-hmm. there is a huge outcry in the media, and I just like ask myself, why do the, why they don't do the same with GMOs? You know, where there are groups of animals with cannibalistic behavior, their guts completely destroyed, and mm-hmm. nobody says anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly, and instead of addressing the questions, you know, the real concerns. Again, it's like the vaccine issue that is just tossed aside. And, you know, they figure if they keep saying GMOs are good, they're healthy, there's no side effects, that people will just stop asking questions. And it seems to be the opposite. People are really starting to ask questions. Yeah, well, you know, it's well, certainly 
something that needs to be addressed. And uh, I think it's one of those things you can just kind of go with your gut on, you know. Um, you can tell intuitively, you know, when you get GMO food, uh, when you can see a tomato that's three times the size that it should be, you know, something is not right there. Something is a little bit off. Yeah. You know, either. Sorry, go ahead. They've even done studies where they've presented animals with normal, natural food and and even the animals don't eat the food. Exactly. And the whole thing, you know, that it's going to save the world has been debunked time and again. You know, even in this article, they talk about Africa and like, well, what about feeding all these people in Africa? And he states blatantly, you know, like a U.N. report. And let me see if I can find it here. Um he said, read what the UN and World Bank sponsors reports have said. You don't need GMOs. Many organizations are trying to educate farmers in Africa and the third world on the best agroecological methods. The problem is not that organic methods can't work, but that farmers often haven't had the knowledge they need. But there are solutions that do not rely on GMOs, which have been proven to work in Africa. So I would say get with the sound science, spend less money, and solve your food problem in a way that will create healthy soil, a healthy family, and a healthy Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see. We, we have here on our list as well, um, <clears throat> Tiffany, you wanted to talk about an article regarding the HPV vaccine. Yeah, there was an article posted on site on the 23rd of April called HPV Vaccine Should Scare the Living Daylights Out of Everyone. It was written by Catherine J. Frompovich. Um, so there are three HPV vaccines uh, that supposedly target the human papillomavirus. Uh, the three vaccines are Gardasil as well as Gardasil 9, which was just approved last December, which actually has double the amount of aluminum as in a regular Gardasil vaccine. So I guess that's an improvement. Um, the third one is the Severix uh, HPV vaccine. So uh, there's a system called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS. So uh, doctors and healthcare professionals are supposed to be reporting uh, these adverse events to this VAERS system but actually only 10% of all adverse effects get reported. However, even with this 10%, there's like a laundry list of adverse events associated with the uh, HPV vaccines. So I'll just go through some of them. Um, in this database, uh, there's 1,311 reports of disability, 226 reports of death, uh, 7,703 uh, categorized under the heading did not recover, but I cannot figure out what that means. Does that mean they died or did not recover from what? But anyway, 7,703 of those, um, 685 reports of abnormal pap smears, 265 reports of cervical dysplasia, 102 reports of cervical cancer, 685 life-threatening events, 12,429 emergency room visits, 
but she don't say exactly what prompted them to go to the emergency room. There's been 4,009 hospitalizations, 267 extended hospital stays, and 5,418 categorized under serious, whatever that means. So in total, there's over 38,000 adverse events associated with the HPV vaccines. So I think this might be another one of those blockbuster drugs that are a complete uh, catastrophe like statins, which we'll get into. Um, so the author says that uh, in the last 10 years, there are over 71,000 problems uh, reported to this database. And you have to keep in mind that you can't directly sue the manufacturer of any vaccine. You have to sue the federal government through something called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And this uh, program is funded by the taxes paid on vaccines. But if you think you're going to get any justice through this program, think again, because for every claim that gets awarded, there's three claims that are dismissed. So there's not much justice there. Um, but it seems like with a lot of things, the U.S. is leading the world in psychopathy and greed. There's been other countries, according to this author, that are at least trying to do something or try to sound the alarm about these HPV vaccines. Like in Colombia, they passed a law that guaranteed the victims of adverse events caused by the vaccines can have any treatment necessary to recover their health at the expense of the government. So that's a little something. I mean, it doesn't go as far as banning the vaccine. Um, in India, the Supreme Court petitioned the government for licensing and using HPV vaccines without adequate research. And in Japan, they held an international symposium on adverse reactions to HPV and they present medical evidence. Essentially, they had a debate, which seems like debate is not allowed in this country. Mm -hmm. um, in France, they launched a petition demanding that widespread HPV vaccination be stopped. In Spain, there's an association of people affected by the HPV vaccine. They met with the Spanish health ministry, and they want to remove the HPV vaccine from the official vaccine schedule because of all the adverse reactions. And then in the UK, uh, there was a meeting between members of parliament and families of girls that were injured by the vaccine. So there's been a worldwide concern, but nothing really is being done in the US except lobbying for the vaccine. And even related to this, I mean, the FDA is supposed to be protecting our health and sort of being a watchdog for dangerous drugs. But even they, they know what's going on because they admitted in one of their transcripts that I looked up online, this uh, meeting took place in 2012, um, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but uh, one of the doctors was speaking at this meeting, and he said that infection with high-risk papillomavirus types is not sufficient to induce cervical cancer. Uh, mm -hmm. Mutation and other genes and perhaps also epigenetic events are required. If all it took was one instance of HPV infection, then teenagers would be getting cervical cancer. And as we know, cervical cancer is a disease of older people. Hmm. So it's a big 
scam and a big fraud. Um, most cases of HPV will resolve in about two years on their own with absolutely no treatment whatsoever, and only less than 5% will develop into warts or cause any kind of cervical anomaly. So the FDA is really not doing their job in protecting the American people's health, and the drug companies just go on unimpeded. Hmm. For me, it's the clearest example of, you know, crimes against humanity. That's how some researchers have referred to these vaccines. And I mm -hmm. think that is very accurate. Uh, some some have even called them weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. which I totally agree with as well. Yeah. Well, that leads us into our, uh, our topic for today. <clears throat> Although... I guess technically we're going to talk about statins a little bit later, but let's get started with um, an overview of cholesterol. And uh, Doug was going to help us uh, for a few minutes here and just kind of talk about what is the function of cholesterol, what does it do? Um, so I think a lot of people might be um, misinformed on this. And, you know, certainly if they don't do any of their own research and you just listen to um, kind of the mainstream on this, you're like, well, cholesterol is bad. It couldn't possibly be good for anything. But uh, as we know, uh, it is. So, Doug, do you want to cover that for a little while? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and I, and as you were saying, um, Jonathan, I mean, uh, if you were just to listen to the media, you would get the impression that cholesterol is this uh, horrible, toxic substance that uh, you want to just completely eliminate from uh, from your diet and from your body as much as possible. But that really isn't the case. Uh, cholesterol um, is extremely important for the, the proper functioning of our bodies, um, any animal body, in fact. Um, so just to give a little background on what it is, um, cholesterol is a sterile molecule, um, and it's biosynthesized in all animal cells. Um, and that right there should tell you how important it is. If every cell in your body is able to make this, um, it has a diverse range of uses, um, essential for all animal life, um, which usually isn't, isn't mentioned in the discussion on cholesterol, um, so our bodies make about one gram per day, give or take. It kind of depends on your weight. This is like an average 150-pound uh, male makes about 150 grams a day. And at any given time, we have about 35 grams in our body. Um, it's uh, vitally important for steroid hormone production. So uh, that includes pregnenolone, which is a precursor to many different uh, um, steroid hormones, including progesterone, DHEA, cholesterol, or sorry, cortisol, um, testosterone and estrogen, uh, just to name a few. It's also vitally important for vitamin D production. Um, and we're, you know, probably going to cover vitamin D in more detail in a future show, but more and more uh, studies are coming um, to the conclusion that vitamin D is, is an extremely important vitamin for us. Um, it's also important for bile production, which uh, it's made in the liver, um, where cholesterol is converted into bile and stored in the gallbladder, uh, and it's essential for digesting fats, which are a major component of our diet. Um, and bile kind of acts as an emulsifier, um, which uh, is necessary for the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins as well as fats. So that includes vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and vitamin K. Um, it's also, cholesterol is also an essential uh, structural component for the cell membrane. Um, and it kind of helps to regulate the integrity and fluidity of membranes. Um, so that, like, it, what it actually does is kind of cause a stiffness to the cell membrane. 
So the body can kind of regulate how fluid its membrane is by adding cholesterol into the membrane. Um, and that can kind of protect us from absorbing certain substances or if there are certain substances that the, the cell doesn't need any more of because it's already full or for whatever reason, if it's something toxic and it needs to protect itself, it'll put more cholesterol into the cell membrane to kind of stiffen it up, like make it into kind of a, um, an impermeable wall. Um, it's also needed for uh, intracellular uh, transport of some substances. Um, it's needed for cell signaling processes. Um, cells in the nervous system, um, it's actually an important uh, component of the myelin sheath, which is kind of like the coating that goes on like the nerve cells. Um, so through that, it's needed for proper uh, insulation and conduction impulses. Uh, your brain needs it to form memories, and uh, it's vital for neurological function. Uh, some research has also shown that cholesterol function uh, uh, also functions as an antioxidant, which is another important function for it. Um, so just to kind of clarify a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into a little bit about the difference between LDL and HDL. Now, we covered this a little bit in um, our show on uh, uh, blood test results and how to read blood test results, but I'll just kind of do a, a quick kind of overview here. Um, so it's important to note that there's only one type of cholesterol. Cholesterol is just cholesterol. Um, HDL and LDL are actually the protein carriers of cholesterol in the bloodstream. Um, so neither one is actually bad or good. Uh, they're just carrier proteins and they're fulfilling their important jobs. Um, mainstream medical science uh, believes that an elevated LDL particle level um, and decreased HDL uh, level is associated with heart disease. Um, but there's a lot of problems with this. Um, first is that uh, tests measuring LDL are generally estimates um, just based on ratios of other blood lipids. So they're not even actually directly measuring LDL. Um, but also uh, more impa important factors than just kind of LDL and HDL level are things like particle size, uh, particle number. Um, these are things that are more associated with risk, but they're not usually measured at all. Uh, current tests only look at the total cholesterol inside the LDL carriers and not the number of carriers or the amount per carrier, um, which are much more predictive. Um, it's possible to have elevated LDL levels but still be healthy as a horse. Um, but this is something that's completely overlooked. And I would encourage anybody to – I just watched a documentary last night called uh, Serial Killers – and they kind of go into that a little bit where, uh, you know, the, the kind of the guy puts himself onto a high fat diet um, to try and um, mitigate some of his uh, inherited uh, heart problems. Um, and, you know, they go into some detail there because his cholesterol is still quite high. Um, but when they actually go into a detailed analysis and look at his particle size, um, they find that it's actually a very beneficial cholesterol profile. So, um this is something that most doctors don't look into. They just see the high LDL numbers and go, oh, no, we need to put you on a statin. Um, but there's actually much more important things to be looking at. Um, medical science is pretty uh, obsessed with the numbers. Um, you know, even, even though they're really looking at the wrong numbers, they're just looking at kind of total LDL cholesterol. Um, and even that's not even an accurate um, measure. Um, but they'll consider anything that brings down those numbers to be beneficial. So instead of actually looking at the overall patient and what they, they really are displaying, they're only looking at that number. Um, and that's kind of prevalent throughout, um, you know, the media and, um, you know, everything. Everybody thinks of 
you know, it's been simplified to the point where you're only looking at this number. And anything that brings down this number is is considered beneficial. Um, and this is how statins have really become one of the best uh, pharmaceutical sellers in the world. Um, they're only looking at these numbers and they're ignoring a lot of other factors and also ignoring actual, you know, outcomes. Instead of looking, you know, they just kind of say, okay, this drug will bring down these numbers, therefore it's good. Instead of saying, well, is this actually benefiting anybody if we actually put them mm -hmm. on these drugs? Yeah, I think, you know, overall it's important to look at, like, cholesterol is not the actual driver of disease, and it never mm -hmm. has been. Um, at best, it can be a predictor of future disease, but it isn't causing the problem. But again, by focusing on these numbers, um, they're looking at cholesterol as being the cause of the problem, and that if you, you, you can solve the problem by actually adjusting the numbers. Um, yeah, so it, it's essentially but, just suppressing a symptom. That, like, you know, these cholesterol numbers are might be a symptom of something else going on, um, but they're not treating the actual thing that's happening. They're treating the symptom. Um, it, it's likely that, as with most modern disease, inflammation is the true culprit, and that high, these high cholesterol numbers or um, improper cholesterol ratios or wrong particle size are actually just, um, you know, indications that there's some kind of inflammation going on in the body somewhere. Um, you know, it's inflammation that actually causes the cholesterol to form these plaques on the artery walls and start start causing these problems. Um, it's also inflammation that causes um, cholesterol to become oxidized. And uh, oxidized cholesterol is is when the cholesterol itself becomes damaged. You know, free uh, free radicals um, produced in the body or coming from an external source can cause uh, cholesterol to become damaged. And this is where things really kind of go wrong because... Uh, the body tries to clean up oxidized uh, cholesterol by sending the immune cells uh, called macro, macrophages um, to try and clean it up. And this actually is what kind of can trigger uh, an inflammatory cascade. Um, so oxidized cholesterol is induced in the system by consuming rancid fats like vegetable oils um, or trans fats, you know, things coming out of deep fryers, uh, things fried in soy oil, cotton oil, these kinds of things. Um, other sources of free radicals, which also uh, oxidize cholesterol, can be a high-carb high diet, um, sugar consumption in general. And I read a quote recently that said that if you, uh, if you can control insulin, uh, you can control um, cholesterol. Um, also excessive cardio exercise, toxic environment, heavy metals, etc., etc., etc. Also, interestingly, excessive iron levels can also... Um, cause uh, oxi uh, oxidation of cholesterol because um, iron actually precipitates the oxidation of cholesterol. Um, yeah, so that's kind of just an overview of, of, of um, cholesterol. Um, hope that was clear. Yeah. Very clear. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, as we had discussed before the show, kind of where it all went wrong regarding cholesterol, and um, I think Gabby wanted to cover some of this history and uh, Ansel Keys and what role he played in, uh, in the misinformation that's out there today. Yeah, uh, if you guys want to read like a study of psychopathology and how it all went wrong, mm -hmm. you guys can read the book, <laughs> The Big Fat Surprise by journalist Nina Takels. She documents with in-depth detail the importance of fat and how we were led astray by mainstream science. And she explains, and I read uh, literally, 
Our distrust of saturated fat dates more than 50 years and can be traced to just one man, a bullying, charismatic, but revered pathologist named Ansel Key, whose quest for fame caused him to run roughshod over basic scientific standards. His deeply flawed seven-country study was the big bang of all our nutrition recommendations today. In an effort to quickly address the terrifying heart disease epidemic, he's persuaded the American Heart Association and ultimately the U.S. government to subscribe to the notion that saturated fat was our chief dietary culprit. Saturated fat specifically came to be blamed for causing heart disease, obesity, and cancer. Eventually, these unfounded beliefs became ingrained as our national dogma, and many of our most esteemed nutrition scientists today endorse this idea based on the same kind of soft science that originated with Keith, end quote. So basically, what Nina Takeoff did is she interviewed all the key players that were responsible for the cholesterol needs, and they gave their impressions of not only the studies made, but also the personalities behind the studies including specifically Ansel Keith. He was really like supremely arrogant, you know, mm-hmm. like with pathological persistence, you know, he pushed this cholesterol based on no science at all. Now mm-hmm. I want to summarize like a few key points, like trivia kind of key points about this history. For example, um, most people know that the seven country study was the one that pioneered the cholesterol mix. It was in the late 60s, and it tracked fat intake and and cardiovascular disease. The countries were basically cherry-picked because more than half of the countries were left out, all the data available basically to make the square peg fit into the round hole. There was exactly 22 countries, and Ansel Keys could have well chosen other seven countries, and he could have claimed that fat was protective against cardiovascular disease, but he didn't. Hmm. Another trivia key point. Ansel Keys knew in 1952 that, in quotes, tremendous dosages of cholesterol to the diet had only a trivial effect in blood cholesterol. So we have the example from his study that 3,000 milligrams per day of cholesterol, keep in mind that a single large egg has less than 200 milligrams, so like over 15 eggs per day made no difference in your blood cholesterol. So you can eat 15 eggs per day every single day. It doesn't matter, you know. It won't change your, it will not make a lot of difference. Then another key point. Um, yes, this is very important and very important. In science, a hypothesis, a hypothesis must not be presumed right until a pile of significant evidence grows up behind it, and even then, you can never be entirely sure. So Keith's unwavering belief in his own hypothesis, even in the face of conflicting evidence, suggests he was willing to stray from these scientific principles to defend it on purpose, you know, just to become famous and rich. Another key point, the seven countries study was an epidemiological study and therefore it could show only an association and not causation. You never, ever use epidemiological studies as evidence to make worldwide dietary recommendations and changes. Yes, yes, this was exactly what happened. Like you never use epidemiological studies for 
or making changes, recommendations. It's just, it proves association, not causation. Yet the whole world changed their dietary habits from, from an epidemiological study alone. Mm-hmm. Then, in fact, this unethical practice of using epidemiological data as a basis for official diet advice was pioneered with pathological persistence by Ansel Keith himself. So he's the pioneer of all, you know, scientific, you know, corruption of these of nutritional sciences specifically. In 1961, Ansel Keith managed three significant groups, like a coup d'etat, basically. One was with the American Heart Association, which was the most powerful heart disease group in U.S. history. Another one on the cover of Time magazine, which was the most influential magazine of its day. And the third coup was the National Institute of Health, which was the leading scientific authority in the land. And back then, it was the richest source of research funds. Nowadays, it's Big Pharma, but back then, it was the National Institute of Health. So basically, since then, a breakfast without eggs and bacon became one of cereal and fruit, and dinner without meat and fat was one of pasta, rice, or potatoes. So it is only until, until now, you know, until especially after 2012 to 2013, that experts are now lamenting these dietary changes that were passed in the 20th century. Because we have had disturbing results, you know, as we have as we have reviewed in previous shows, and particularly in this one, it is the high intake of carbs that ruined our health. You know, so so this is a recap of the history. I hope that was, you know, clarified. <laughs> well, he certainly sounds like a psychopath to me. I think like even before he embarked upon this uh, whole cholesterol study, he was. He might have been like an army doctor, and he was engaged in some really, really unethical experiments, like starvation experiments with troops. Mm-hmm. But he was a really shady character, kind of like Louis Pasteur. It's kind yeah. of ironic that he's a pathologist, and he shows <laughs> yes. pathological tendencies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The interviews that Nina Tekel did to to critics of Angel Keith, they're very, very, you know, clarifying. It really is like a study of psychopathology. If you guys, you know, want to have like the practical side of psychopathology, yeah, you can read about Angel Keith and what he did and how he silenced his critics and how, you know, he got away with it, basically. Well, that leads as well into our next uh, segment. Tiffany, do you want to cover for a little while some of the lies and myths around cholesterol that have been propped up? Some of the stuff oh, sure. Well, the first big one is that eggs are bad for you. <laughs> or if you do eat eggs, just eat the whites. Uh, so people are generally advised to avoid eggs because of the cholesterol contents, uh, which is about 373 milligrams. But if you only eat the whites, you're missing out on a vast majority of the nutrients that's found in eggs. Um, so if you have eggs and you eat the yolks and they're from good organic eggs from pasture-raised chickens, um, they're loaded with vitamins. It has all the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. It has B vitamins and minerals, such as calcium, magnesium, selenium, and others. And it has carotenoids, which are good for your eyes and protect against macular degeneration. And they also have essential fatty acids. And egg yolks are one of the 
few foods containing naturally occurring vitamin D. Egg yolks also contain sulfur, which is essential for healthy hair and nails. Egg whites, on the other hand, have essentially no fatty acids, no carotenoids. They basically have protein, a little bit of minerals. So if you're going to skip anything, skip the whites and just Mm. eat the yolks. Uh, Another myth is that uh, high cholesterol is bad and it's a major cause of heart disease. This is so wrong. Um, High cholesterol, say, a number over 300. Um, But I don't know if that can even be taken seriously because over the years, the numbers that are considered high have gradually been lowered. I guess it's kind of a ploy to, you know, eventually get basically every adult and child in the U.S. on a statin drugs. But say you have a high cholesterol of over 300. And like Doug said before, that's just a signal that there might be some inflammation in your blood vessels and the cholesterol is just serving as a patch when you have damage on your vessels. So they're targeting the cholesterol instead of whatever might be the the hidden cause of inflammation in the first place. Um, Sherry Rogers wrote a book called The Cholesterol Hoax, and she says that um, uh, causes of inflammation could be hidden infections, nutrient deficiencies, which I would consider like uh, a high-carb diet causing nutrient deficiencies or excess sugar causing nutrient deficiencies. Uh, she also names damage from trans fats, as Doug said before. Um, but she also named uh, long-term accumulation of pesticides, phthalates, Teflon, mercury, and other chemicals that people should be investigating as underlying causes of inflammation instead of going after cholesterol. Another myth is you have to treat high cholesterol. And there's been studies that have shown that high cholesterol has no predictive value whatsoever in determining who will die of a heart attack or heart disease. And it's been shown that there's people with high cholesterol levels who live longer than people with normal or low cholesterol levels. And related to this myth is that knowing your cholesterol level is one of the most important things to know when it comes to your health. Um, Half the people who die of heart attacks don't even have high cholesterol. Um, You'd be better off knowing your C-reactive protein and homocysteine levels. Uh, Both of those are markers of inflammation and they're more useful in predicting your risk of heart attack versus cholesterol numbers. And finally, um, the last myth is the lower your cholesterol, the better. But it's been shown that cholesterol, total cholesterol under 160 doubles the risk of brain hemorrhage and increases the risk of cancers of the liver, lung, pancreas, and also increases your risk of getting leukemia. Hmm. So those are just some of the, the big myths about cholesterol that led to such disastrous health, health results in this country. So, yeah, so plenty of myths, plenty of misinformation about cholesterol. Yeah. Well, that leads us into talking about um, <clears throat> what people do to treat these, you know, supposedly damaging high cholesterol levels, which is uh, statin drugs. And um, many people may know from their own personal experience or the experience of family members that statins have really negative side effects. And um, I should say, 
that while we're talking about this and talking about medications that people do use, uh, that the views and the uh, opinions that we express here are not meant to be medical advice. Um, we would encourage you to consult your own health practitioner uh, when you're making medical decisions for you and our family. Uh, you and your family, we are just uh, having these conversations and trying to bring this information to light. So we are not intending to actually give you medical advice as we talk about this. But uh, that being said, uh, Gabby wanted to cover um, some studies, some of the main studies that have been done regarding statins and what the results of those were. Yeah. Before going to the studies, I want to, you know, I want to clarify that statins is my most unfavorite drug. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> right there on top with vaccines. <laughs> yeah, studying drugs, I have to clarify as well that it depletes two nutrients that are very important in the body. One is selenium, and the other one is coenzyme Q10. CoQ10, coenzyme Q10, Q, uh, Q10, is a key nutrient for energy production and heart health. So people typically report muscle cramps or leg muscle aches while in studies due to lack of energy. Those who don't have these symptoms still have detrimental structural changes uh, according to some of the research available. This is in muscle. CoQ10 is very important in several pathways and in energy in the body, you know. And also keep in mind that the heart is a, is a muscle as well. In fact, congestive heart failure has gone way up during the time Statins have been a top seller on the market. Hmm. Low levels of CoQ10 are involved in all cardiovascular diseases, absolutely all of them. So it is the ultimate tragedy that statins for heart health block CoQ10, you know. Some of the adverse effects related with statin drugs and that are like in the scientific literature, there are 300 adverse effects reported. And some of them are, <laughs> yeah, hmm. depression, confusion, cognitive decline, memory problems, inability, inability to concentrate, increased risk of infection, pneumonia, any infection for that matter, liver damage, increased risk of cancer, fatigue, kidney failure, impotence, destruction of muscle cells, which is also called rhabdomyolysis, shortness of breath. So, yes, over 300 effects. Also effects related with with, lower, with lowering cholesterol levels, like when you have cholesterol levels below 150, you have an increased risk for Parkinson's disease, for violent behavior, for suicide, memory, lo memory loss, and stroke. Based on other guidelines, you know, recommendation guidelines made by, by expert panels, that even some of the key members of the expert panel don't even agree with these guidelines, I, I should say. But doctors and patients try to keep cholesterol levels below 200. This is very difficult to achieve. This is where statin drugs uh, come, you know. They help to, to keep levels below 200. And uh, if you have a heart attack or a stroke, then the guidelines say that your LDL cholesterol should be less than 75. And I speak from experience here. Anybody who has this level below than 75 of LDL cholesterol looks either supremely ill or feels like complete crap, you know, basically that's, mm. that's it. <laughs> so yet this is the level recommended by experts following a heart attack where you should have like better health. Some prominent doctors, which includes the president of the Royal College of Physicians, 
his name is Sir Richard something, argued, he argued in a declaration letter, and I read literally. A doctor making a case for these drugs can quite easily look ill-informed, biased, or just plain stupid in the eyes of your patients. And so I thought that was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and now for the three studies, I wanted to actually bring to everyone's attention because it really like portrays the absurdity, absurdity of, of all of this. So Yes. Can I jump in here for a minute just to yes, make things so. clear of like <laughs> what we mean when we say statin drugs? Uh, just to make sure that everybody knows exactly what they are and what we're talking about. Um, the generic name usually has something followed by statin. So like Lipitor would be atorvastatin as a generic name. Zocor is also known as Simvastatin, Crestor. It's known as rosuvastatin. There's some other ones, but those are the most popular ones that are used. But there was actually another one called Baycol, and that was taken off the market due to dangerous side effects and 31 deaths. And they ended up having to pay a billion, one billion dollars to to people who were damaged by their drugs. So just to let everybody know exactly what those statin drugs are when we're talking about them. Yeah. They're mostly known in the U.S. by brand names. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. These are all blockbuster drugs. Uh, In fact, you know, according to the history, these drugs have made the most money in all medical history, not even vaccines. It's it's standard drugs. They are the top sellers of all medical history. Yeah, I think Lipitor is the best-selling drug in the history of drugs. Hmm. Yes. So these are immensely hugely rich people, you know. So probably that is why, despite these studies, we still have them on the market. Uh, I argue that actually it is thanks to statin drugs that the cholesterol may be still alive. So for the studies, for example, um, statin drugs is actually linked with microalbuminuria. This actually means that small traces of protein in the urine, that's the definition of microalbuminuria. Uh, And microalbuminuria is something that is known to double the risk of, of heart attack or stroke in patients with type 2 diabetes. It is also a marker of very poor endothelial health. Uh, the endothelium is the inner lining of your blood vessels, and it determines cardiovascular disease risk. So statin drugs is actually linked with this. Then statin drug use is associated with accelerated coronary artery and aortic artery calcification both of which greatly contribute to cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. So when you're having a bypass heart surgery, you know, when you have your arteries with full of atherosclerosis, what you always consistently find is a lot of calcium. It's just like touching a stone, you know. A blood vessel should be smooth and silky and soft. So this is like behind the heart, the cardiovascular problems that people have. And statin drugs is associated with this. Then, so basically we have, you know, a drug that causes heart disease, which is the very thing it tries to prevent, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unbelievable. I quoted, yeah, I know, it's, it's truly tragic. You know, I quoted to Richard Thompson, 
I also want to quote, uh, quote an eminent vascular surgeon by the name of Dr. Sultan. He was interviewed in the documentary, The Staffing Nation. It's really a good documentary to recommend to anybody taking these drugs. He wrote in his 2013 report, which he published in a scientific journal, that the statin industry is the utmost medical tragedy of all times, and the statins are associated with triple the risk of coronary artery and aortic calcification. So basically, yes, we have a drug in the market for lowering cholesterol that doesn't make any sense at all. Just mm -hmm. this week on my mainstream news alert of medicine, you know, I received another study which shows that it um, increases the risk of diabetes by 46%, you know. <laughs> and uh, yes, we could go on and on and on. And basically, I want to quote an, an article I published at stop.net for people who want to have access to the database of 300 adverse health effects. And it is the article, Cracking the Cholesterol Meat, How Statins Harm the Body and Mind. And it is written by Sayer G and um, Kelly, I forgot her name. Well, basically, it just uh, quotes the database of GreenMed Info um, with 300 adverse health effects, all published in the, in the literature and at least with 28 distinct modes of toxicity, including muscle damage, nerve damage, liver damage, cancer promoting, diabetes promoting, cardiovascular damaging, and so forth. And uh, I want to say just one last note on these drugs that, and also in general about medical literature, which popularizes drugs around statistical analysis, specifically the, the, the statistical analysis called relative risk reduction. It makes the effect appear like very meaningful but if you run the same exact data through another statistical analysis called absolute risk reduction, it reveals its complete insignificance, you know. Then you can, you can show, you know, with the first analysis, you can show a 50% reduction in heart disease. But if you run the same data on the second uh, statistical analysis, you really see that it's a change from a 2% to a 1% heart attack rate. So it's it's basically like a 1% risk reduction. Mm -hmm. So with all the data we just reviewed, I'll say it's safe to take that 1% risk and spare yourself cancer, diabetes, violent yeah. behavior, cognitive dysfunction, and so forth. And it's been yes, and Alzheimer's. <laughs> yes, Alzheimer's. And also keep in mind that this study is, ba is basically sponsored by an industry that has paid $19.2 billion for civil and criminal charges in the last five years below, not to mention what you just discussed, that is the, they're blockbuster drugs. They're the drugs that have made the most money in all medical history. Hmm. So, yes, it's my case. <laughs> I read my case. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to add to that. Um, I watched an interesting YouTube video last night called The Great Cholesterol Deception, the story behind statins uh, by the legal edition. And they have the guest is Stephanie Senoff. She's a research scientist at MIT. And basically, she just came right out and said that I will say emphatically statin drugs will be shown to be the worst disaster in pharma 
in the pharmaceutical industry, people don't realize how dangerous these drugs really are. And she went on to say that they even have a black box label like Vioxx. That mm. is, uh, there's absolutely no benefits and uh, statin drugs are a myth. It's a toxic chemical. Mm-hmm. And I will dare to say that Vioxx pales in comparison with statin drugs because mm-hmm. Vioxx was related with how many millions of deaths. But, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about statin drugs, lowering cholesterol, which is so vital, well, heart disease being the number first cause of death, you know, in the U.S., well, I, I think we're talking about millions of millions of millions of millions of people. Yeah. And at least Vioxx was taken off the market, even if it was after a number of years, but at the very least, it is no longer with us. I don't see any end in sight to these statin drugs. No. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a, a patient once who uh, called me up on the phone, and he told me that the night before, he was just feeling very weak, very bad, and he fell down on the floor, and he couldn't get up, and he couldn't move, and he was pulling himself across the floor, and finally he pulled himself into bed. Next day I got there, I took him to the urgent care, and um, he they ran some blood tests. Um, he thought it, he'd had a stroke. So they ran blood tests and they tested his CPK level, which is a marker of muscle breakdown. And Mm. statins are known to cause that, like uh, Gabby says, called rhabdomyolysis. And the normal level for CPK is 10 to 100 international units per liter. And this guy's CPK number was over 2,000. Cool. (laughs) We went went for a follow-up. So yeah. that causes kidney damage, yes. That's yeah, why. yeah. So we went for a follow-up appointment at his doctor. <laughs> his doctor his doctor wanted him to put him on a different statin drug. <laughs> I just had to put my down. Oh, man. I said, no, <laughs> you cannot do this. Oh, my God. I know, I know. I, it's really, like, very pathetic. I had an argument with a neuro- neurologist one because I had an elderly patient in the emergency room whose cholesterol level was, like, below 100. LDL was below 75. And I was outraged because he was, like, he was having dem- dementia, like Parkinson, Alzheimer's-like disease. And just because, he, just because he had a stroke, the neurologist told me that I couldn't, you know, discourage statin drugs, which I did, you know. And basically, you know, it was an endless point because the neurologist and uh, was the main healthcare provider, so I could not. I did mm-hmm. spoke with the, with the family members telling, you know, come on, you know, your brain is made of cholesterol. You know, if you don't have cholesterol, you know, don't, just don't expect any cognitive improvement in this patient, you know, and it was, it's, it's really very angry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and well, the fact true. that it causes it causes dementia or Alzheimer's or cognitive dysfunction is really no surprise because, like you said, Gabby, the brain contains 25% of your brain is made up of cholesterol. And if you wipe that out, your brain is basically mush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also mentioning the fact that low cholesterol levels is actually correlated with stroke. So that advice mm-hmm. was completely ill-advised, you know. Jeez. Yeah. 
Well, that yeah, that's Stephanie. Uh, Sen- oh, I was just going to yeah, add yeah. that in, in that in that YouTube video, uh, Stephanie Senoff even said that there's a correlation with road rage and these uh, violence, as you guys suggested earlier. Mm. So it's it's frightening. Well, while, while some of these things might have, uh, you know, viable uh, natural alternatives for treatment, <clears throat> you know, people might hear that their statins, you hear this information about statins, not want to try them, and then look for some sort of a natural way to lower their cholesterol. That can actually also be damaging, as we are talking about cholesterol is beneficial, and what you want to do is reduce inflammation, not necessarily reduce your cholesterol. Um, so uh, Doug wanted to go over for a little bit some of these purported natural remedies for uh, high cholesterol and the, the idea that that's also kind of missing the point. Um, so Doug, do you want to cover that for a little bit? Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a couple of uh, popular um, natural remedies for, for cholesterol, but it's like you were saying, Jonathan, I mean, the, the, the thing is that they're still focusing on the wrong thing, right? Like basically these are people who've gone to their doctors, their doctors have measured their cholesterol and said, your cholesterol is too high, I'd like to put you on a medication, and they're looking for a natural alternative, which is, you know, that, that's, that, that's a good idea. But, um, but the problem is that they're still looking at the numbers. So one of the first things people tend to come across is phytosterols. So phytosterols are basically um, the plant version of cholesterol. Like plant, plants uh, manufacture their own, phytos, uh, their own cholesterol, which are called phytosterols. Uh, they're chemically similar to cholesterol, but they're not the same thing. Um, the two most popular ones you see in supplemental form are, are ones called campesterol and cysterol. Um, Phytosterols uh, actually compete for uh, reabsorption in the intestinal tract. Um, so they potentially reduce cholesterol um, by making the body uh, actually absorb less cholesterol from, from the intestinal tract and absorb the, the plant sterols instead. Um, when the intestinal lining absorbs um, phytosterols in place of cholesterol, they actually excrete the phytosterol molecules back into the GI tract. Um, and this is believed to have uh, a protective effect, um, since it's believed that part of uh, much of the problem with cholesterol is that we um, reabsorb too much. And you can see that also when um, oat bran became really, really popular. Um, I guess it was back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, all these different cereal companies were like pumping up the oat bran content of their uh, of their cereals because oat bran was found to bind to cholesterol and actually make you excrete more of it rather than reabsorbing it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, the only reason the researchers believe phytosterols to be protective, um, is that the supplement actually shows a lowering effect on the LDL, um, numbers. Um, and again, this gets back to the whole obsession with the numbers and whether those numbers actually have any, any meaning. Um, due to the LDL, uh, lowering effect, people with high cholesterol numbers are often encouraged to supplement plant sterols as a natural way of lowering cholesterol. Um, it's even including, included in a lot of uh, what are called functional foods, um, especially margarine spreads. There's a couple of margarine spreads out in the, uh, out in the market right now that contain uh, plant sterols. Uh, one of them is called Benicol. Um, there's another one called Floro, Flora Proactive. Um, and it's important to note that when supplementing or taking these functional foods, you're actually getting 841 times higher amounts of uh, plant sterols than is found in any vegetable. So right there, that should maybe set off some alarm bells. 
Um, increasing evidence for plant sterols, despite lowering low LDL levels, actually increase coronary events. Um, there was a study in a journal called Nutrition, Metabolism, and Cardiovascular Disease in January of 2006. Um, it was conducted to evaluate uh, if cysterol levels seen in the general population are associated with uh, uh, the occurrence of coronary events. Uh, the study found that men with the highest risk of uh, sorry, with the highest cysterol levels had a 1.8-fold increase in the risk of major coronary events compared to men with lower levels. Um, among the men of, um, in the high-risk group of coronary events, uh, the higher cysterol levels um, were associated with uh, an additional three-fold increase in the incidence of coronary events. Um, and men with a high cysterol to cholesterol ratio had a three-fold increase in the incidence of coronary events. Um, the study's lead author concluded elevations in um, cysterol uh, concentrations and cysterol cholesterol ratio appears to be associated with an increased occurrence of major coronary events in men with high global risk of coronary heart disease. Um, there was an even more recent study um, published in a journal called Steroids um, in 2015 of March, sorry, March of 2015. Um, the study found, well, I'll just kind of go over it here. It was basically, it found that the more uh, plant sterols you had, um, in the in greater increased risk you had of coronary artery disease. Um, there, you know, it wasn't, you, you can't really take this as a smoking gun because it was, it, these, these are associations. Um, so you can't really um, make a, a causative argument for it. Um, it, these things are just associated, but at the same time, as a precaution, it seems wise to avoid the consumption of uh, excessive plant sterols. Um, there are a lot more studies, actually, that show um, negative effects of plant sterols, um, and I encourage anybody to uh, check out, there's a blog called Healthy Diets and Science, um, where the guy basically just uh, combs the, uh, the, the medical journals um, and publishes uh, different uh, studies that, that show these different things. So he's got a bunch up there that show the, the negative effects of, of plant sterols. And, you know, overall it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you're taking in uh, a substance that is designed to, um, well, I mean, it's not designed to, but uh, the, the whole purpose of it is to replace cholesterol with a, a substance that's kind of like it, but not quite. So you know that it's not going to be able to have the same effect that cholesterol has. You know, it's not going to have the same function. So to take in all kinds of this stuff and replace the naturally occurring cholesterol, it's going to lead to all kinds of problems. And it looks like coronary events are kind of the major one. Um, there is another um, natural substance uh, called red yeast rice. Um, and basically, this is a natural statin. It works on the same pathway. Um, therefore, it's associated with a lot of the same side effects you see in statins. Um, so although, you know, it is a natural product and it doesn't have quite the same uh, side effects associated with it, there are still quite a few. Um, and I don't generally encourage people to take uh, red yeast rice. I did talk to a practitioner at one point who said that he would put um, his uh, clients onto red yeast rice just to get the doctors off their back to kind of like get them say, no, 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 look, see, my cholesterol numbers are down. I don't need to go on a statin. And then he would start a more natural protocol with them and get them off the red yeast rice too. Um, mm. One thing that's important, uh, if you are going to do red yeast rice, uh, as with statin medications, you absolutely must supplement CoQ10. 
because the uh, the biological pathway that um, creates cholesterol also creates CoQ10. So if you're shutting down the the cholesterol um, uh, making pathway, then you're also going to be stop making the CoQ10. So that's another thing that you need to do. Um, I don't want to say that there aren't any um, natural methods that will help with uh, with um, excessive cholesterol. Although again, you know, it, it, cholesterol isn't really the problem. So um, really, what you want to be doing is dealing with inflammation. So uh, best way to do that is uh, through diet, through uh, mitigating any toxic exposure. Um, you know cutting um, sugar consumption, bringing your insulin levels down, those sorts of things. Um, even uh, dealing with the microbial environment too. We talked all about the gut in uh, a past show. Um, so getting getting uh, your gut kind of healed and uh, have the proper um, microbes there, eating fermented foods, that sort of thing. Um, things like vitamin E, um, omega-3s, taking uh, antioxidants, vitamin C is very important. In fact, uh, some of the research of Linus Pauling from, uh, you know, almost a century ago at this point, I guess, um, he did lots of studies on vitamin C and including amino acids like proline, lysine, taurine. These things are much more um, uh, viable as a method for um, dealing with a situation where you're seeing high, high cholesterol levels. Well, that's fascinating information about the, uh, you know, like you said, that, the, you know, this is purported as natural cures, and so they might sound better, um, but what people really need to be doing is, is looking into the, the root cause of the problem, mm -hmm. uh, which is not necessarily the cholesterol levels. Um, yeah. Let's take, a, let's take a moment here to go to Zoya's uh, pet health segment for today. Um, looks like she's going to be telling us about some historical facts about pets and other animals. Um, so we will go to Zoya here and we'll be back afterwards with a recipe for paleo cashew bread, which is a quite interesting, low-carb, totally grain-free uh, bread that you can make. Um, so we will be back after this. <laughs> Hello, and Hello. welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health Health Wellness Show. This time, the topic of the segment uh, will be a bit different and uh, maybe a bit more fun. I'm going to share with you some of the interesting and historical facts about cats and dogs. Uh, so let's begin with cats. Female cats tend to be right-pawed, while male cats are more often left-pawed. The group of words associated with cat uh, stems from the Latin catus, meaning domestic cat, as opposed to philus, or wild cat. A cat's hearing is better than a dog's, and a cat can hear high-frequency sounds up to two octaves higher than a human. A cat rubs against people not only to be affectionate, but also to mark, uh, mark out its territory with sand glands around its face. The tail area and paws also carry the cat scent. Researchers aren't sure exactly how a cat purrs. Most veterinarians believe that a cat purrs by vibrating vocal folds deep in the throat. To do this, a muscle in the larynx opens and closes the air passage around 25 times per second. In 1988, 
more than 300,000 mummified cats were found in, in, in the Egyptian cemetery. They were stripped of their wrappings and carted off to be used by farmers in England and in the U.S. for fertilizer. Really crazy. Most cats give birth to a litter of between one and nine kittens. The largest known litter ever produced uh, was about 19 kittens, of which 15 survived. Some CMS cats appear cross-eyed because the nerves from the left side of the brain go to mostly the right eye, and the nerves from the right side of the brain go mostly to the left eye. This causes some double vision, which the cat tries to correct by crossing its eyes. Researchers believe the word tabi comes from the Atabia, the neighborhood in Baghdad, Iraq. Tabis got their name because their stripped coats resemble the famous wavy patterns in the silk produced in the city. Cats hate the water because their fur does not insulate well when it's wet. The Turkish van, however, is one cat that likes swimming. Bred in Central Asia, its coat has a unique texture that makes it water-resilient. A cat's eyesight is, is both better and worse than humans. It is better because cats can see in much dimmer light and they have a wider peripheral view. It's worse because they don't see color as well as humans do. Scientists believe grass appears red to cats. Now, a, a crazy story about Russians also from a Cold War period. In Holland's embassy in Moscow, Russia, uh, the, staff noticed, uh, the staff noticed that the two Siamese cats uh, kept meowing and clawing at the walls of the building. The owners finally investigated, thinking they would find mice. Instead, they discovered microphones hidden by Russian spies. The cats heard the microphones when they turned on. A cat has 230 bones in its body. A human has 206. A cat has no color bones, so, so it can fit through any opening the size of its head. Cats don't have sweat glands over their bodies like humans do. Instead, they sweat only through their paws. Cats are extremely sensitive to vibrations. Cats are said to detect earthquake tremors 10 or 15 minutes before humans can. And uh, the last one, also about Russians. Uh, in the 1930s, two Russian biologists discovered the color change in Siamese kittens depend on their body temperature. Siamese cats carry albino genes that work only when the body temperature is above 98 uh, Fahrenheit. If these kittens are left in a very warm room, the points won't darken, won't darken, and they will stay creamy white. Now let's talk about dogs. Dogs also uh, have sweat glands in between their paws. Dogs have three eyelids. The third lid, called a uh, nictitating migraine, or how, uh, keeps the eye lubricated and protected. The phrase reigning cats and dogs originated in 17th century England. During heavy rainstorms, many homeless animals would drawn and float uh, down the streets, giving the uh, appearance that it had actually rained cats and dogs. 
The shape of the of a dog's face suggests how long it will live. Dogs with sharp pointed faces that look more like uh, wolves typically live longer. And dogs with very flat faces, such as bulldogs, often have shorter lives. French poodles did not originate in France, but in Germany. Poodle comes from a German poodle um, or poodle hunt, meaning splashing dog. Some scholars speculate that poodle's puffs of hair evolved when hunters shaved the poodle for more efficient swimming, while leaving the pompons around the major joints to keep them warm. The first dogs were self-domesticated wolves, which at least 1,200 years ago, uh, 12,000 years ago, uh, became attracted to the first sites of permanent human uh, human habitation. Laika, a Russian stray, was the first living mammal to orbit the Earth in the Soviet Sputnik spacecraft in 1957. Though she died in space, her daughter, Pushinka, had four puppies with President John F. Kennedy Terrier Charlie. The term dog days of summer was coined by the ancient Greeks and Romans to describe the hottest days of summer that coincided with the rising of the dog star Sirius. Alexander the Great is said to have founded and named a city Peritas in memory of his dog. A dog most likely interprets a smiling person as baring their teeth, which is an act of aggression. Touch is the first sense the dog develops. The entire body, including the paws, is covered with touch-sensitive nerve endings. Dog nose prints are as unique as human fingerprints and can be used to, to identify them. It is much easier for dogs to learn spoken commands if they are given in conjunction with hand signals and gestures. Dogs in a pack are more likely to chase and hunt than a single dog on its own. Two dogs are enough to form a pack. Dogs can see in color, so they most likely see colors similar to a colorblind human. They can see better when the light is low. Some dogs can smell dead bodies underwater, where termites are hiding, and natural gas buried under 40 feet of dirt. They can even detect cancer that is too small to be detected by a doctor, and can find lung cancer by sniffing a person's breath. In Croatia, scientists discovered that lampposts were falling down because a chemical in the urine of male dogs was rotting the metal. Dogs are about uh, as smart as a two or three year, uh, years old child. This means that they can understand about 150-200 words, including signals and hand uh, movements, with the same meaning as uh, words. The grief suffered after a pet dog dies can be the same as that experienced after the death of a person. Well, this is it for today. Hope you found the information interesting. Have a great day and goodbye. <laughs> well, that was very interesting, especially the bit about the cat sniffing out the uh, the bugs and the spies. It was mm. pretty wild. 
<laughs> the part about the dog urine knocking down the telephone poles. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's go um, over our, our recipe for today. This is something that uh, that Doug hit me to, and so Doug, I'll, I'll ask you to weigh in on this after we we go over the mm-hmm. ingredients. But um, sure, uh, it's a it's a cashew bread, uh, and it's totally grain free and uh, low carb. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the ingredients are one cup of cashew butter, uh, preferably organic, and you want to get raw cashew butter. Um, five large eggs one tablespoon apple cider vinegar, one teaspoon of uh, sweetener. Uh, you can use uh, stevia or xylitol, or you can actually leave that out. Um, three quarters of a teaspoon of baking soda, and one quarter teaspoon of sea salt. Um, whether you want to use sea salt or, or like mineral salt, um, it's up to you, but it's a quarter teaspoon. Um, and to make this uh, in a food processor, Pull together the cashew butter and the eggs until you get a smooth kind of pasty texture. Then add in the apple cider vinegar and the sweetener, pulse that together, uh, and then add in the baking soda and the salt. Uh, you end up with a, a batter kind of texture. Um, transfer that to a baking dish. Um, this recipe calls for an eight by four inch baking dish, but of course you can modify that to your liking if you want to make small uh, kind of pieces or make more of a loaf size thing. Um, and then bake at 350 for 45 minutes and cool for two hours. Uh, and the pictures that I've seen of this bread, um, it, it looks just like bread. So it, it's pretty amazing, but it's totally grain-free. Uh, and the cashew butter does have some carbohydrates, uh, but you can assess that content of it yourself. And I think if you eat a slice or two of this at a time, uh, even if you're in a ketogenic diet, um, you're not going to knock yourself over your carbohydrate limit. Um, Doug, you had also mentioned that this could be used with uh, almond butter and other types mm-hmm. of things. Yeah, you can really uh, substitute any kind of nut butter that you want to. Um, hazelnut butter, cashew butter. We did it with pumpkin seed butter at one point. That turned out really well as well. Yeah. Awesome. It, it actually it, it turns out really great. I mean, you do want to watch the uh, the protein car- the content and the carb content. But um, I actually found that just putting, like, a nice fat slab of, like, salted butter on a slice of bread, that was basically a meal. It was uh, yeah. – it, 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 it turns out really well. I mean, you do want to watch for nut sensitivities and things like that. Like, obviously, it's not something that everybody can do. But, uh, sure. no, it's it's great. It's great. Awesome. Well, uh, and I was kind of joking when we were talking about this that this gets me one step closer to my ketogenic uh, Reuben sandwich which I've been trying to work on. This is a solution for the bread. (laughs) Maybe we could add some caraway seeds and make sort of a rye type thing. Oh, absolutely. All right. Well, that's uh, that's our show for today. Um, Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we hope to uh, see you guys next week here at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern on Monday. Um, And as of right now, we're planning on talking about the the mood cure um, next week and talking about different ways to... uh, stabilize your your mood uh, using various tools uh, without using pharmaceuticals and a natural way to um, to kind of even out uh, those bad days, so to speak. Um, so, uh, again, thanks to everybody, and thanks to our, our hosts uh, for weighing in on this topic today, and we will see you guys next week. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone.